The edition is sponsored by Charles Stanley, one of the UK's leading wealth managers, providing bespoke investment management and financial advice. Find out more at charles-stanley.co.uk. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages, with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, Brexit is back on the agenda, but talks might be more difficult now than before. I also take a look at why immunity is so elusive for coronaviruses and what this means for our policy of lockdown. And at the very end, a discussion about fish. If it's going to be the thing that breaks up Brexit talks, shouldn't we at least eat more of it? First up, James Forsyth writes in a cover piece this week that Brexit is back on the agenda. But the gap between the two sides is still incredibly big, and it's not clear that it will be bridged, especially during this pandemic. James joins me now, together with Raoul Ruperol, former special advisor to Theresa May on Europe. So James, can you catch listeners up on what's been going on in the Brexit negotiations? And why exactly next month is so important? So there had been an assumption that because coronavirus meant that the two negotiating teams couldn't meet in person, Brexit was going to have to be delayed. But the UK government has made very clear that it doesn't want to do that. It thinks that the differences between the two sides are so high level that it's not something that's going to be solved by just more meetings. And they think that you actually need a kind of deadline to exert pressure on both sides to compromise. They have had a couple of negotiating rounds now on video conference, but those negotiating rounds have been bedeviled by the problems that all video conferencing have, which is the two sides have basically talked past each other. Things have got tense quite quickly because it's quite hard to negotiate on video conference without any kind of non-verbal cues. And I also think there's a problem that you know, you're know you trying to do all this about any kind of social lubricant. If you think back to the thing that worked so well in the last round of the Brexit talks was you know that meeting between Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar at Thornton Manor in the Wirral. And the point there was that the two could talk them almost offline because it was just the two of them. There's been no opportunity for David Frost and Michelle Barnier to do that because you don't get that kind of intimacy over uh, over video. And I think it's a sign of a state of negotiations that David Frost and Michelle Barnier are now both sending each other pained letters publicly declaring that the other one has to move if there is to be an agreement. Rao, in layman's terms, can you explain what the differences still are and why that yawning gap is just so big? Yeah, sure. I sort of see there being five big sort of high-level political differences. The first is on what's known as level playing field. So the terms uh, under which the UK could sell into the EU market on things like state aid, uh, environment, uh, social employment, workers' rights, taxation. The EU wants to keep in most areas non-regression from EU rules, so the UK can't go below them in the future. But in state aid, wants to keep the EU tied into harmonising with EU rules going forward. Uh, and the UK is looking for something more basic in terms of usual FTA commitments to not lowering below international standards, but nothing as, as onerous as what the EU sees. The next big difference is on governance and structure. The EU wants a single agreement with cross-cutting governance. So if the UK is seen to breach the agreement in one area, it could be punished in another area. Whereas the uh, UK just wants a suite of agreements with their own individual governance, so any any breach is kept in that area in particular. 
The third is fishing. The UK wants to basically see annual negotiations over access to UK waters. Uh, and the EU basically wants to have a permanent solution which looks very similar to what there is now. The fourth is sort of security and justice in home affairs. The UK wants to continue to have access to EU tools and databases on sharing information about criminals and other cross-border issues, uh, where, whereas it's not willing to agree to the oversight of the European Court of Justice to do with any data coming out of those systems or adhering to EU rules going forward as those systems might evolve. And those are both issues the EU sees as prerequisites. And then the final issue is to do with the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Obviously, the EU is basically saying... There needs to be something close to a full third country border between GB and NI. And the only issue up for discussion is which tariffs might or might not be applied, uh, depending if the good is at risk of going from NI into Ireland and the EU. Whereas the UK is obviously seeing this as a much larger issue of how do we have as light touch a border as possible? What facilitations, easements and changes can be made to make any border and checks and requirements between Great Britain and Northern Ireland as minimal as possible. So these are, you know, it's a very quick run through of all the issues. <laughs> they are they are quite substantial. They're both big political issues in many areas, but also technical differences uh, and technically difficult to overcome. And I think, you know, even one or two of these could scupper a negotiation, but all of them together is making any kind of real progress very hard. So given all this then, James, a lot of people have been expecting perhaps that there will be an extension to the transition period, especially with the background of coronavirus as well. But you write in the magazine this week that some in government actually think the pandemic is a reason not to extend. Argument about why not to extend because of coronavirus goes twofold. The first is that the UK economy is going to have to be rebuilt, essentially, after coronavirus. You know, you're talking about a 35% fall in GDP. Various industries are not coming back. So you're going to have to have a kind of slightly different economic model afterwards. And the argument goes that you don't want to have to ask the economy to transform twice. So if you extended the transition, there'd have to be a, a first rebuilding phase done within the rules of a single market and the customs union, and then a kind of second adjustment phase after the UK leaves the single market and the customs union. The argument goes, you know, why not get it all done at once? And then I think the second argument is that the EU27 are going to have to do the same thing themselves. And if the EU stays in transition where it has to accept EU rules without any say over those rules, the EU won't have a voice at the table in those discussions and could find the EU implementing or developing new rules that the UK has to apply that don't suit the UK. And those are the two reasons. I mean, there's another argument going on, which is, look, one cabinet minister who voted Remain made this argument for me the other day, which is, look, coronavirus has so disrupted supply chains that we're essentially the UK is already over the cliff edge of no deal now. And so the costs of no, a no-deal Brexit are lower now than they would have been before coronavirus. Well, Yeah, so I think I can sort of superficially see the attraction of those arguments the government is making, but I, I don't think those points hold when you drill into the details. So let's take the need, you don't want to transition twice. But obviously, I think the sectors most impacted by coronavirus, you're looking at, uh, obviously, airlines, travel, hospitality, the domestic focused economy, construction, real estate, manufacturing, you know, aside from manufacturing, most of those other sectors were very limitedly impacted by Brexit. 
And so actually, you know, you are actually causing two transitions because you're having one part of the economy having to transition once to deal with Corona and another part having to transition to deal with Brexit. And so you're trying to do both of those at the same time. So you're actually impacting a wider array of sectors by doing it at the same time rather than staggering it or having a delay. So that's the first thing. And then on supply chains, I mean, again, yes, superficially, there has been disruption to supply chains. And obviously, in the medium and longer term, we, you know, we don't know, but it looks as if the nature of trade, uh, the need for resilience and, and diversity in supply chains is going to grow. But again, the, the things businesses are considering in these areas are very different with COVID-19 compared to Brexit. So let's take a big auto firm, for example. You know, from COVID, they're facing uncertainty on labour supply. How do they run their factory uh, with, uh, you know, social distancing? You know, how do they manage disruptions in terms of some suppliers going bust? Any restrictions on imports and exports in certain countries? Any delays at certain borders? That's quite different to what they're going to face under Brexit, which is an increase of admin costs that are known but but it's quite high in terms of the the number of uh, movements back and forth across from UK to Europe and the potential tariffs and also the delays from customs checks. So while they're in the same space and they are disruptions to supply chains, they are very different. And rather than cancelling each other out, they actually layer on top of each other. So I think I can see the superficial attraction of the governments and, and some of those arguments. And I think it certainly applies more in the demand space in that the demand hit from COVID-19 has certainly overdone anything you would have seen from Brexit. But I think actually when you get into the details of supply and, and what I'm talking to business about in terms of their preparations, they're actually quite different in many ways. Obviously, James, as you write in the piece this week, that a premises preferred option is just to get a deal anyway. But Raoul, you've written recently about what you call a conditional extension, which may be the third way out, as it were. Yeah, so I mean, uh, the idea behind a conditional extension is that essentially, you know, obviously the government wants a deal. But at the way it stands, even if a deal is struck at the moment, uh, at the last minute, it's not going to be worth a huge amount because no one will have any time to implement it and no one will be prepared for it. Uh, and so businesses are either going to not prepare or they're going to prepare for something else, as in the worst case and, and no deal. Uh, and therefore, the value of having a deal is significantly reduced. And so I think, you know, if you if you are aiming for a deal, it makes sense to try and give some time for that to actually be implemented and to actually allow people to make use of it. That seems fairly logical to me. And so that was that was the approach. I also accept some of the government's arguments that they don't just want to extend the negotiations. You know, they want to have time pressure. They want to have the threat of, of no agreement. You know, I actually am sympathetic to those things helping to generate movement in the negotiations. And that's why a conditional extension allows that pressure to be maintained because it only applies if you actually get over these big disagreements we've talked about. And so, you know, it's designed to be a bit of a middle way that takes account of the government's concerns, but also takes account of the fact that if you want a deal, you should have time to implement it, as is commonplace, you know, for any FTA, basically, and any big regulatory change. I think what's very clever about Raoul's proposal is that it, it does address Boris Johnson's belief that only time pressure on a deadline can force the kind of the pace of these talks. I think the problem is this, is Boris Johnson thinks, you know, at Cabinet last week, he was still very, you know, very bullish on the prospects of getting a deal. He thinks everyone's going to end up being pragmatic in the end. The problem is his definition of pragmatism is very different from the EU's definition of pragmatism. You know, he basically thinks all this level playing field stuff, you know, come on, you don't need that, right? The EU thinks that is essential. And 
one of the things I think is most interesting is talking to, to people very close to this process. On the UK side, they really would prefer... When the EU says, oh, there are still tariffs in the Canada deal, for example, right? If you offered Boris Johnson a choice between meeting the EU halfway on the level playing field or having tariffs on certain goods and agricultural products, he would take the tariffs every day of the week. And the EU say, oh, we haven't got time to go through this line by line. But I now think that if there is going to be a deal, it is more likely to be a deal that involves some tariffs than the original idea of a zero tariff, zero quota deal. I just think the UK is not prepared to move enough on the level playing field to get that zero tariff deal. And so if you actually want a deal, you would be better dialing down your expectations and aiming for a deal that does include some tariffs, but also has lots of border facilitations and stuff like that to speed things through customs. You know, James is exactly right in how he characterises the government's position. And I think, you know, again, I, I have some sympathy with the fact that the, the arse the EU is putting down, particularly on level playing fields, don't seem reasonable, at least from a technical and practical perspective. You know, they are ultimately political asks. I think if, if you're looking at what is needed to avoid an unfair competition, there is a way to design it that is less onerous uh, and can be achieved. But I think it comes to James's point that both sides have a different view of what is practical and pragmatic, and there is still a big gap there. And I think, you know, there is right, there is a sense on both sides that, you know, at some point rationality will prevail. Unfortunately, it's their view of rationality. And so there is, I think, the chance of there not being agreement is, is unfortunately, for that reason, increasing. I mean, on the tariff point, I think the problem we have there as well is it's not really on the table from the EU side. I think if that was an offer, that might be possible. But, you know, what you hear from the EU when you raise this with them is, well, we don't have time to do a line-by-line tariff negotiation, not just because it's complicated in the, in the negotiation itself. You know, it may only be 1% or 2% of tariffs, so surely it can't take that long. But I think the bigger issue is getting the member states among them, amongst themselves to agree on where those tariffs are going to fall, because, you know, different states will have different economic interests, different value of trade. And while it's only, you know, 1% or 2% of tariffs, the volume of trade under those tariffs can sometimes be quite large. So it can have an impact. So at the moment, that's the EU position. Let's see if that holds as things carry on. But even then, you know, whether they would lower their level playing field demands enough for the UK remains to be seen. It's, it's not entirely clear they would. I think Raoul just made a very particularly important point there, which is I think the general view in Westminster is, oh, we've all seen this movie before. Both sides ramp up the rhetoric, say a deal's impossible, start threatening to walk away. And then lo and behold, at the last minute, there's a breakthrough, there's a compromise, and you get a deal. And I mean, that, that is the kind of one of the reasons why, I mean, not just growing, that, that obviously combined with coronavirus is why Brexit is so low down the news agenda at the moment. People just think that they, you know, it's going to be like last time. But there's a crucial difference, as Raul just pointed out with last time, which is last time around, the, the big issue was the Irish backstop. So Boris Johnson had to square essentially one person, Leo Varadkar. Once he had squared him, the EU was prepared to move. The EU was more interested in demonstrating solidarity with Ireland than it was in the precise details of the, the protocol, the backstop. Now, you've got the interests of 27 EU members at stake. 
So if Boris Johnson went for a walk in the woods, you know, he needs to take 27 leaders with him, not just one. And I think there's another problem, which is you've got a new commission in place. The commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, is, is nowhere near as formidable a figure as Jean-Claude Juncker. She doesn't have a kind of Martin Selmayr figure around her who can knock heads together and force a deal. And the EU is distracted by two massive issues. One is obviously coronavirus. And the second is the, the whole financial framework of the EU going forward. So, you know, again, this Brexit is not top of the agenda for Emmanuel Macron or Angela Merkel. You know, they are much more interested in the future of the Eurozone, the future of the EU budget, all of those issues. And I think this is this is what is tricky, which is I think this idea of a last minute breakthrough with a bit of kind of Boris Johnson charm and one on one diplomacy, the structure of this round of talks makes that much, much harder than it was in the first round. Okay, so we wait and see what happens in the coming few weeks then. Raoul and James, thanks very much. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Try a month in print and online for free. And, for a limited time only, get a free wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger to start today. Next, the Crick Institute has been doing some work on coronaviruses and why immunity to them seems so elusive. One of its scientists, Rupert Beale, writes about it in this week's magazine. So what do we understand about immunity and how does this impact policy? Rupert joins me now together with former cabinet minister and conservative peer Nicky Morgan. So Rupert, can you start by telling us what we know about immunity and why it's so elusive? Well, immunity is a very complicated thing anyway, and immunity to coronaviruses hasn't actually been very well studied. The main problem has been that uh, there are four what we call seasonal coronaviruses, and none of them really cause serious disease. So there hasn't been a huge amount of research effort um, to look at immunity to these viruses. What is known about them is that they tend to infect almost everybody in childhood and continue to reinfect um, throughout life. Uh, And it's thought that approximately once every five years or so, um, adults will get reinfected with one of these seasonal coronaviruses that they've encountered in the past. The two other coronaviruses that we know about, apart from SARS-CoV-2, the the, the one that is sort of public enemy number one at the moment, are MERS, which is an extremely serious, what we call zoonotic um, virus that comes to us from dromedary camels. And and that kills about 30% of the people that it infects, so an extremely serious infection. That does generate quite lasting immunity, as far as we know. And then, of course, there's SARS-1, Again, a much more serious illness than than is usually contracted with SARS-CoV-2 that killed about 10% of the people that it infected. And again, there's lasting immunity to that virus. With SARS-CoV-2, it's a bit difficult to tell, but it's um, for most people, it's a relatively mild illness. We know that there can be cases where you can be asymptomatic. And there's just beginning to be evidence that in the asymptomatic and milder cases, you have a less rigorous, a less sort of strong antibody response. So it's more likely that for most people this will behave like the other seasonal coronaviruses, where you can become infected and if it is a mild illness, then you could then subsequently be reinfected. Now, we don't know that because obviously this virus has not been with us for very long. And clearly there is a degree of immunity that is imparted by being infected with the virus. But in terms of developing what what, what is called 
herd immunity, so the point being that when enough people have got the virus within a population, it will stop transmitting. I think that's very unlikely to occur for this virus. You know, I could be wrong, but I think most scientists would think that immunity through natural infection will not prevent the population as a whole from continuing to have this virus. And so you might predict that if it does end up behaving a little bit like the seasonal coronaviruses, that it would come round and you'd have waves of this infection. And the, the basis for that in terms of immunity and population level dynamics is really not at all understood. And what complicates it even more is there seems to be a, a relationship between these coronaviruses. There may be some slight degree of cross immunization that, that we're just beginning to explore, the colleagues in this uh, laboratory here. And Meanwhile, you say as well, Rupert, that we don't know how long a vaccine is going to take. There is the Correct. Oxford team, of course, that is relatively yes. confident one will be found by September. How, how do you assess that? So the, the good news is that almost all of the vaccine studies um, that have been carried out in a competent way so far look as though they are eliciting the right sort of immunity. And none of them are reporting serious adverse effects. The Oxford vaccine uh, study has been shown to induce a, a fair degree of immunity in a, an animal model. And that was just after, after just one dose as well. So it may well be possible that you could boost the immune response by giving a vaccine you know, twice. It happens quite frequently for other conditions that you, you vaccinate more than once in order to uh, elicit a stronger immune response. So I think, well, as you would see from the article, I, I won't say I'm an optimist about this, but I will say that I'm hopeful. And I think it's a, a sort of a, a, a nice distinction to make, actually, in these circumstances. But the data so far from all of the vaccine studies that I've seen is, is quite hopeful, I would say that. Nikki, given all of this, is it about time to start thinking about ways to live with the virus in looser ways than is the lockdown that we're in at the moment? Yes, I think it probably is. And I think that is what the government's response document that was published uh, last week is driving at. And I think this is a huge challenge for policymakers. I have watched all of this, obviously having left Cabinet not that long ago, really feeling for my colleagues who were there, because everything that you thought you knew, everything you wanted to do, relies on things like you know social contact, it relies on businesses continuing to go about their business as normal, all those sorts of things, and many, many more, having to be completely rethought. And I also think the Prime Minister has a task next time he speaks to the nation of kind of giving everyone a bit of a, a psychological confidence, a bit like George W. Bush did after 2001, where he said America has to go back to work now. And I think that encouragement has to come from senior policymakers as well, that we can, we, we are going to be able to find a balance, but it's going to have to keep adjusting as we see how community transmission and transmission in our health and social care sector happens over the next few months. But at the same time, that reluctance to loosen seems to come from the top as well. You know, we're constantly being told that we're two weeks behind Italy, or we were at the beginning of this mm. anyway. Italy this week has opened its restaurants. I don't think in two weeks' time anyone's talking about us opening our restaurants. So are we now following a more stringent trajectory than other countries are? 
Well, possibly. And I think undoubtedly that the Prime Minister's own brush with uh, the health service and with his own illness is going to be, you know, it's going to be a factor in this, but he won't let it dominate everything else. He will listen to the advice of people around him. I'm interested to hear from, from Rupert, but I mean, I think there is that real concern, and we've heard it from the Governor of the Bank of England as well, and many others, uh, of the, the second uh, wave, if you like, which potentially impacts or, or could adversely impact on confidence of consumers and, and, and citizens uh, even more in a way than the, than the first wave. But I think we're also going to have to understand that we probably are going to have to ease up on lockdown a bit, have different decisions in different parts of the country, depending on what happens in, in terms of transmission rates. Um, and we're all feeling our way on this. And I think be guided by what's right for the UK rather than what's happening uh, overseas. Although Matt Hancock was right to say, well, of course, we'll watch what's happening overseas. But we have to do what's right for our own national national character and national culture. Well, I think um, in terms of policy, I'm obviously not an expert, but in terms of the way in which other countries have dealt with this, I, I think we are finally going to be doing what we really ought to have been doing right from the beginning, which is uh, test, trace and, and, and isolate. And all of the countries that have really successfully uh, got on top of this have done that to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, South Korea gave us a fantastic example to, to start off with, and this is something I was advocating at the beginning of March. Obviously, other people took a, a, a different view. Interesting case, actually, is, is Germany. If, if you look at what the Robert Koch Institute was suggesting at the beginning of March, they were quite similar in the approach that the UK government was taking at that time. And they were talking about, uh, you know, flattening the curve and ending up with a degree of herd immunity. I, I would put it like that. But they sort of switched strategy and were able to do so because they developed already um, the testing capacity that they needed and the, uh, they never stopped the sort of testing and tracing. So I, I think there's a, a sort of big lesson to be learned there. And I, I'm pleased to say I think the government has learned that lesson. And, and if you look at that document, which uh, rightly suggests this is the biggest challenge facing government since the 1940s. And there are lots of reasons to prefer that sort of really targeted approach. Um, to a sort of mass blanket lockdown. And Nikki, I think it's fair to say on that point that test, track and trace hasn't always been the government's policy to this. It's something that James Forsyth writes about in our on our website earlier this week that the question for Boris Johnson is whether it would be better for him to admit that specific errors were made. So do you think it is time for the government to say whether on test, track and trace or care homes or something else, Mayor Copa, we've made some mistakes? Well, I, th- I think people can see that, that obviously uh, decisions taken, you know, some weeks ago, um, uh, you can see that perhaps the, what the consequences are. I think it's it's really difficult. I'm pretty sure that the Prime Minister, and I think they have actually in many cases, just sort of said, look, actually, if we'd known now what we knew, that, you know, if we'd known then what we know now, then you know, there might have been a different decision. I, I mean, I think there's also in terms of test, track and trace, when the pandemic was at its height, just in terms of numbers, I mean, you can see now about the thousands of people having to be recruited to be the contact tracers, the work being put into developing the apps, for for example. Um, and I think, you know, so we are learning those lessons. I think we have to be really careful. Inevitably, there's going to be lots of select committees looking into this, lots of journalists, lots of, you know, inquiry or something. I think we do have to be really, really careful about not um, saying, uh, you know, oh, this is wrong because we now know something seven weeks later. Um, There is a a debate to be had about how prepared we were overall, but I think that applies to the whole of the West, frankly. Uh, Nikki, finally, before I let you both go, 
just on health workers and migrant health workers mm. in the NHS, you know, as we're recording, there are rumblings of a Conservative backbench revolt on the issue of surcharges and whether or not they should be increased for uh, migrant workers in the NHS. What do you think the government should do about this? I think the government has to be generous on this. I think it's pretty clear that we have had, and the Prime Minister himself has been treated by those from uh, overseas um, who have worked tirelessly um, in the health service. And I think this is one of those things where I think the government is going to have to say, we need to to rethink this. And I think rightly MPs will be reflecting the concerns of constituents in their post bags on this. Nikki and Rupert, thanks very much. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Try a month in print and online for free. And, for a limited time only, get a free wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger to start today. And last... In this week's issue, Andrew Watts writes about just how little Brits enjoy fish, considering we're a coastal nation. He joins me down the line now, together with the founder and CEO of Pesky Fish, Ben King. Pesky Fish is a startup company delivering fish from fisherman to door, and prides itself on its speedy supply chain. So Andrew, can you start by telling us about a problem that you identify with the British fish diet this week? Well, the piece came from a conversation I was having with someone uh, about the Brexit negotiations, which have started up again. And it seems that one of the big stumbling blocks is going to be fish. And a friend of mine that I was talking to said, but British people don't eat fish. Why are we getting so excited about this? And I thought, you know, he's right. I I mean, we do eat some fish and we're eating more than we used to. But I wondered why it was that British people don't seem to eat as much fish as they do in France, in Spain, uh, in all the other places on the continent. And you also say it's about the varieties of fish that we don't eat. Well, the strange thing is that we import a lot of fish, cod and haddock, and then we export all the really good fish that we're getting out of our our seas. Uh, And there are some much nicer fish than cod and haddock. (laughs) And Ben, would you agree that the Brits have a surprisingly bad relationship with fish? I mean, we are a coastal nation. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I think Andrew's absolutely right. The, the fact that we have so many beautiful species in, in, our, in our waters is, is a sort of sad indictment on our, on our palate from, from, from one perspective. But I'd also say a lot of the time, you know, where are people going to get the access to eat this fish? You know, if you, if you go to your supermarkets, you don't get the whole range of British species that are there. You get fish that, you know, in all honesty, closer resembles Tutankhamun's finger, having gone through four or five different hands to get there. So the means of people actually getting the opportunity to buy this fish, to therefore get the opportunity to experience it, I think itself is rather limited. And I think, you know, go back to, to sort of what's written in Andrew's piece, is it how, if you go back to, this is maybe the sixth or the seventh domino, but the first domino was when we started to lose the opportunity to, to buy that fish. And I think, I think really where we are now is, is the consequence of that. So I, I, what I would say is that there is an appetite for it, but I would say that maybe the access until now hasn't necessarily been so uh, prolific. And Andrew, you say in the piece as well that it's just one fewer step devoid from the actual animal itself, so that scares us. I, I think so, and I don't know why, what... What, what is unique about the British attitude in this? Uh, and do you find this, Ben? Absolutely. I mean, I think a great reference that someone once said on that exact issue is that you don't walk into Nando's and see a whole chicken with X's over its eyes. I think that probably would give people a slightly different way of ordering uh, their lemon and herb compliment to it. So, yeah, in, in, in many respects, <laughs> I, think, I, think that is, I think that is a, a challenge to it. 
But also, I think there's, there's multiple factors. There's, that there are things that sort of make part of the sort of emotional experience. So the fact that people have this perception that fish smells, you know, because they're used to going into places where there is, I mean, just the term fishy. And, you know, so I think there are several elements to it. But, but, you know, one of the things that we've seen recently is when you can just make, and it comes back to that word accessibility, when, when you can make the, the experience of cooking with fish as simple as it would be cooking a steak, actually you can overcome some of those barriers and then just completely redefine people's experiences. But you're right, that inherent scepticism or, or fear, to use your words, is, is definitely prevalent. But, but I don't think it needs to be for, for that much longer. Ben, can you tell us what you guys are trying to do at Pesky Fish and also just the sort of variety that we are missing out on? Like what, I mean, I've not really heard of many fish other than cod, haddock and maybe mackerel. Yeah, no, exactly. So, so in, in short, Pesky is, is nothing more than an open and transparent market that enables fishermen to sell uh, their catch to any possible buyer in the chain. So rather than just the first buyers that you see in a, maybe in a morning auction or the, the Newland auction near you, Andrew, what a fisherman has the opportunity to do now as they sort of did this morning is sell every single fish they catch to any possible customer, whether that be someone in their homes, into a restaurant, into a fishmonger's. And so I think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, make, we're trying to make it possible so that people can have the most phenomenal experiences by buying directly from the boat, not from a supermarket, not from necessarily from a, a fishmonger, but so you can have that phenomenal experience as if you were taking it from the fishermen themselves. God, I'll give you one example. It's this beautiful, beautiful story. It's, it's a fish called pouting. Now, pouting was a fish that used to get landed and sold at the market for about 40p a kilo. And that used to get, just get used for pot baits or dog food, but never, ever given the opportunity for people to buy that fish for their homes. And so now, when we put it up on the site, it's probably the second or the third fastest selling line, and the fishermen are getting four pounds a kilo for it. So that, as a, and, and it's super sustainable because it's so abundant. And so you like by opening up that transparent marketplace, you're not only just delivering people great experiences, but every time people buy that way, they're actively contributing to a better and more sustainable uh, industry. And that's the real excitement for us. And Andrew, in your piece, you talk about the one time you filleted mackerel. Readers of the magazine will remember that this was the instance that you wrote about in the magazine previously when you cooked for your wife, our restaurant critic, Tanya Gold. But that instance didn't go down extremely well, I would say, <laughs> at home. Do you think Tanya can be persuaded by, by what we've been talking about today? Well, that was the one thing I wanted to ask Ben, actually, because the, <laughs> the mackerel was not a success, I have to be honest. Okay. But we're having a barbecue this afternoon. Uh, but the filleting was a success, right? It oh, wasn't oh, yeah. the filleting that was a problem. Yeah, but uh, it, it took uh, an hour to do, because it was my first time. Uh, so I had to watch some videos. And, and then Tony took one mouthful and rejected it. This afternoon, uh, it's a lovely day down here in Cornwall, so I am going to get uh, some fish for the barbecue. What do you think I should get? Oh, that's a very good question. So maybe my, maybe my first question would be is, uh, are you looking for a whole fish or a filleted fish? Uh, probably, uh, actually no, you're, you're, you're right, probably a filleted fish. <laughs> okay, so my, my suggestion right now is, and we raised cod before, so cod at the moment is, very, is, is falling in terms of its sustainability rating, but if you can find any, uh, which you will definitely find plenty down in Newland, lime caught pollock, uh, that is an abundant, beautiful uh, white fish, which is almost exactly the same as cod. Uh, it barbecues phenomenally well, and it's got a beautiful, beautiful flavour to it. So yeah, every time you buy pollock instead of cod, you'd be making the seas better, and hopefully as a consequence, you'd be having, uh, you'd be having some uh, very positive consequences of cooking that dinner. Right. Okay, I shall try that. Well, that's a lovely note to end it on. 
Ben and Andrew, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to this podcast through all the usual routes and we always love to hear from you. So please do rate, rate and review us. And why not tell a friend about this podcast too? And remember, you can read all the pieces discussed in this podcast in the magazine this week, as well as Melvin Bragg's diary, Rod Liddell on why schools should stay shut, and a review of Animal Crossing, the video game by Lynn Barber. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Try a month in print and online for free. And, for a limited time only, get a free wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger to start today.